Thanks for spending time with Fusion Community Church through our podcast. These can be accessed anytime through iTunes or on our website, fusioncommunity.church. We hope you enjoy today's message from Pastor Andrew Fetter. Well, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says this, a final word. That's how the Apostle Paul begins the last section of the letter that he wrote to the 200-plus meeting locations around the ancient city of Ephesus. That's how many possible locations or congregations are represented in this ancient city that scholars and historians tell us about. In the first century of the church's existence, there was this kind of informal, organic connection between Jesus' followers in the, in the known world, especially over specific regions or, or ancient cities. And when we think of the letters of the New Testament, we often think of them being written to a specific church. And we think of church like us, gathered here, uh, the, belonging to a kind of a, a banner on, on the side of the building, Fusion Community Church or whatever. But it was really letters written to a region of collective different churches with different lay people who were leading those churches and shepherding those people. Some of the people Paul knew personally, but only some of them. The vast majority had come to faith more recently than when, when, it, when he was there and he left Ephesus. You could call these 200 plus different little house churches that were meeting around the city of Ephesus, you could call them microchurches. In every letter that Paul wrote to these microchurches, it was kind of like a written sermon that he prepared specifically for the people that were a part of these many different house congregations in and around this ancient city. Scholars tell us it's hard to really estimate exactly how many, what the population would have been in the city of Ephesus at the time of Paul writing of this letter. Uh, Some say 50,000, some say 100,000, some say more. But, but that gives you a scope of just the concentration of people in and around Ephesus to have 200 plus different meeting locations for congregations. And so these letters would be written, and it would be written to a person in a specific microchurch. They would receive it, they would kind of share it with their house church, then they would take it down the street and around the corner, and they would pass it off to someone else who would share Paul's letter to the house church that was gathered there. And then that microchurch would take it and they'd pass it on to somebody else. And so if it was read once a day, And there's over 200 locations. They're reading this letter over the course of more than six months. And if they read it one one day and then a couple days later another church gathered, I mean, this could have been over a year until the letter of Paul completely circulates around. Now think about for a moment how different their experience of going to church was than ours. I mean, just the very simple difference of having a parking lot with, with lined spots that you would drive into. In our, in our modern day, you're pulling into somebody's driveway to go to church. Going to church, when they left their house to go to church, in their day, they were walking down their street and maybe turning a corner, maybe not, maybe just walking across the street to a neighbor's house, and then they would go inside with 12 or 15 people who would commit to pray together, worship together, fellowship together, maybe read the letter of Paul that day, maybe turn their attention to one of the scriptures in the Old Testament, maybe reflecting on a story of the life of Jesus or, or something that's happening in, in, the, in the church as a whole during the period of time in the book of Acts. I mean, what if right now your only definition of the church was the handful of people that came and hang out with you in your house on a Sunday morning. Or maybe not even Sunday morning, maybe it's a Tuesday night because Sunday morning doesn't work for your schedule. What if that was going to church for you, sitting on your couch, drinking your coffee, opening your refrigerator to get a snack? Well, of course, something interesting is happening because there's so many people that are experiencing that idea of gathering together as the church over the course of this last year. All of us have experienced it in some way, shape, or form. 
And something interesting has been happening in our culture over the last few years that just kind of went to a new level during this period of isolation and quarantine. And, and it's been true as you look at the statistics in the annual report. More people are a part of our worship gatherings out there than meet in here on average throughout the course of this last year. That there are, are more gathering and the exposure of the ministry here from Fusion, people gathering around TV screens, cell phones, computers, laptops, as their own microchurch to a greater degree in, in mass numbers than, than those of us that meet here in this room on a week-to-week -week basis. And so even for those of you that are kind of in your own microchurch, the only question that, that I would have for you in, in regards to the book of Acts and what we see at the time of the, of the book of Ephesus, the letter being written from Paul to churches there is, it, it, has there been invitations for neighbors to come and join you in your microchurch? Over this last year, we know on average, somewhere around, we can track it with a lot of specificity, somewhere around 150 individual uh, devices are connecting live to our worship gatherings for, for many, many minutes at a time. They're, they're hanging out with us for a little bit. That doesn't mean that 150 are connected for the entire time, but let's be honest, not all of you focus for the entire time either. That's why you have Facebook on your phone and you know you, you, your mind drifts as mine does. That's one of the biggest benefits of getting to be up here delivering the message is my mind can't drift or it, it, it's exposed like it is right now. This isn't anything in my notes, right? So, so somewhere around 150 individual devices are connecting, uh, are being exposed to our live gatherings while they're happening on Sunday mornings, which uh, mathematics tell us and statistics can tell us pretty accurately. Somewhere around an average of 246 people are connecting, leaning in for the conversation, leaning in for worship, leaning in for prayer, leaning in for teaching on Sunday mornings from out there somewhere, different states across the country, even at times different countries. Now, you look at the delayed and on-demand stats, and those are much higher, and those are much harder to track because it's not within this period of time where we're meeting together live. It's, it's different, but the exposure and opportunities that we have to share the gospel, both in this space and through cyberspace, are greater than they've ever been before. Paul was doing all he could at his time, to reach people with the gospel. We know at the beginning of Ephesus, what's he doing? He's chained to the ground in a filthy, dirty dungeon, and he's writing a letter. It's all he could do. He's writing a letter that 2,000 years later, we're reflecting on slowly, a chapter a week. Paul's pouring his life, his ministry, his writings, into the spread of these microchurches, into the health and development and growth of disciples and this same idea of a web of interconnected house churches is one that's been gaining steam in our country over the last few years. It's, it's really ramped up during COVID in large part because interconnect, internet connectivity keeps us, keeps us connected even though we can be in different places, linking us together remotely. Now, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul didn't know what a live stream was. He didn't know what a computer or smartphone was. I mean, the word Android wasn't even in their vocabulary yet. They had no idea. The only thing he would have been familiar with are Windows and an Apple. But it wasn't anything related to what windows are what he looked out of and apples were what he ate, right? He had no other definition for those words except for that. So today is kind of the final word as he starts, a final word. This is the final word on this six-week journey through the book of Ephesians. It's his closing of this letter that he's written to these 200-plus churches that are meeting. And it's a final word reflection for us on this year that has been that some of us are so ready to move past and get beyond but I think we're, we're compelled for a moment with the God of the universe who is in authority. We're compelled to pause and reflect and honestly admit, okay, God, you've been doing things during this time you could only do by allowing to what happened what you've allowed to happen. Now, this series has talked about six different shifts we need to make 
to live this made-for-more life Jesus promised in John 10. The first is shifting away from more effort, trying harder, doing more, to, to more Jesus in our lives, more focus on the Savior, the Redeemer, the Son of God. The second shift is from seeing ourselves as volunteers with just a couple little things that we can do, but, but not really that great, to seeing ourselves as a masterpiece in the hands of God, designed specifically and uniquely for a purpose with a masterpiece mission. The third shift is, deals with motivation for why we do what we do, moving away from being driven by guilt or obligation and moving into the realm that Jesus models for us where everything he did is for, did is for love. The fourth shift is moving from climbing ladders, hierarchies, trying to scale the ladder, trying to, to get more success, to recognizing that what we've been called to is build bridges to one another, to see that we're missionaries, we're storytellers, telling people what God's done in our lives. And last week we looked at a shift from more programming in our lives, more things to do. It's not just about filling a schedule. It's about the things we're already doing, the places we already are, seeing that when we're there, it's our mission field. And the mission field is defined not by a piece of geography, but by, by the, the sphere of people in the circle God has already opened us, opened the door to for us. So today we talk about this last shift, shift number six. Now you could look at these first five things, they're up there on the screen, you know, right here beside me. All these five things, you can kind of see them there. And, uh, and you could say, man, this is a, this is a strategy of this made for more life. Like this is kind of what it looks like to live it out. But, but you know, the word strategy has a dangerous definition. Let me define it for you. It says a plan of action designed to achieve a major goal. Now, if you're a goal-setting kind of person, you're just like, yeah, I like strategies, right? If you like sports, like it, you, it, or if you like history, like you love reading in history about these moments where maybe it's the formation of our nation or it's about wars and you just love, you know, the strategy of war and combat and how somebody won and, and what led to somebody lose. If you love business, there's different business strategies of companies that have made changes when the culture's changed and they've just gone to a whole other stratosphere. Others like Blockbuster couldn't make the change and now there's only one of them left in the country, like all those kinds of things. And at first you could say, man, strategy is great. <clears throat> we can look at these five things and say, God's given us this grand strategy to experience this more and better life he's promised. That if we do these five things as best we can, we'll receive, we'll experience that made for more life. But here's the dangerous thing about strategies. Chances are you've had a bunch of great strategies at different points in your life of how you could save more money or how you could pay off debt faster or great strategies about starting a new business but it didn't work, and then you tried another one, and that didn't work, or a strategy to, you know, at one point in your life, you're going to get her attention because, man, she's cute, or you're going to get his attention because that's kind of who you've always envisioned you would marry, somebody like him, or, or, or some strategy, even in your spiritual life, like I have a strategy, I want it to be a better Christian, I need to do this and do this, and this is how I can pray more and read the Bible more, and a strategy to give more, and I have a strategy, you know, all of us, if we're honest, in our own opinions, in our own little world, we're like, you know, the world would just be easier and a better place if everybody just listened to me, amen, like that's a strategy, like I, I, I have common sense, just listen to me, but in chapter 6 of Ephesians, God, God kind of throws a curveball to us, not only in our own lives, but also collectively as the church as a whole. See, we have our own ways of measuring the effectiveness of success of whatever, whatever we're a part of. We have our own means of measurements, right? Our own ways of evaluating is our strategy, is our plan working, or is it not? And even this week, we, we have a report with a bunch of statistics, numbers that are kind of meant to give us some sense of measurement or, or evaluation of effectiveness for ministry over the last year. But we have to first admit that God's ways are not like our ways. And shift six is actually shifting away from more strategies where we think we control results and shifting towards something else entirely. See, our best plans or strategies in life as human beings, they're all about, they're fixed on what we can do 
and what we're capable of and what we know and what we think we can predict and what we're good at and what we like and what we're passionate about and what we think we can make happen and what gifts we have and what we enjoy or what we want. But that also means that our strategies are very, very limited because our power is limited. And if, and if it's our best thinking giving us these strategies and plans, compared to God, our best thinking is pretty limited as well. Paul tells us in chapter 6, the key to a life of joy, a life of victory and peace. And in verse 10, he starts with a final word, church. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Big statement. There it is. But now he's going to kind of unpack for us and show us how do we live that out. He says, verse 11, put on all the armor, all of God's armor, so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. If right now you think your biggest foe in life, if you think there's one person or one group of people, flesh and blood, making your life miserable, you have been deceived. God wants you to understand crystal clear. Your battle ultimately is not against any person or group of people, flesh and blood. You have a spiritual adversary behind the scenes pulling strings. Your greatest enemy is one of spiritual origin. And if you can't admit that, you're going to be fighting against yourself the entire time. That's the first thing to understand. We have to know who the enemy is. If we're going to put on the armor of God, we need to know what we're strapping up for and what battle lies before us. God says in verse 11, he says, this enemy has strategies against you, which is Paul kind of pointing us back once again to John 10.10, right? John 10.10, the theme verse, I've come to give you life and give it more abundantly, but do you know what comes right before that? In John 10.10, he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy of God comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's, That's who we're fixed in the battle against. I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. So Jesus tells us, this is what the enemy wants, steal, kill, and destroy. Paul's saying, hey, you don't battle against flesh and blood. You're battling a a power you can't see in a dark world. And he's been given dominion over this world as a result of sin and rebellion to God. But Paul's also saying in the rest of this text, he says, but God in his goodness has also made way a path of victory where we can stand firm against these strategies of the enemy. And we can stand in the strength of God in his power through walking closer and closer with him. In a way, the byproduct of these first five shifts leads to the sixth one, right? Shifting to focus more on Jesus and his rescue of us. Shifting to see that we're a masterpiece in his hands. Shifting to to allow our motivation to be one driven by love for God and love for others, especially those who aren't like us. Uh, shifting to be more aware of who we are as a missionary, a storyteller of the great rescue mission of God for us, and shifting to look that, that everywhere I already am is a mission field, and God has placed me there on purpose. All of these five adjustments lead us to the sixth one, in how we, and, and they're changes in how we think of ourselves and how we look at the world around us. And then ultimately, number six is the one we have to do. It's after we know who we are and what God's called us to and who He is in us, then we can be given a command of what to do. Put on the armor of God. What's the do? Shift from more strategies to more surrender. We don't, we don't have the control of the outcomes. Only God does. So we surrender to him and his will. Surrendering is yielding 
to God's timing, to his way, to his will. It's looking at what's happening right in front of us that we wish we could change. A circumstance you're in, a situation that our church is in, a a context of our culture that we're not big enough or powerful enough to alter in a second and saying, you know what, God, if I was you, I would do things a lot differently, but I'm glad I'm not you because then I'd screw it up even worse than it is. And this shift can be described this way. It's a shift of execution. A shift of execution. It's where I cease trying to execute my strategy and instead, I'm not thinking about what I, need, what I, what I, what I want to do, I'm going to execute my ego before a holy God. It's not about me. I'm going to surrender. It's not about me. And this is a unique idea to Christianity. If anybody ever tries to tell you that all world religions are the same, kindly tell them they're clueless. Christianity tells us, the understanding we have of the gospel in the New Testament tells us that we'll never measure up. Unless God comes, a perfect one comes and dies in our place, we have no hope. Every other world religion says, hey, try to earn it. Do your best. May your good outweigh your bad. And then someday, just maybe, just maybe, you'll do enough where you'll escape punishment for that. But you'll never really know. You'll never have peace. You'll never have security whether you've done enough. But see, in the New Testament, we know that none of us are good enough. None of us measure up. We're all selfish. Our only hope is to get to eternity with God on somebody else's ticket. That's God's grace given to us. Because his wrath towards sin was carried into the grave by his one and only son. But see, there's so many other differences with Christianity as well. Between Christianity and other world religions. Other world religions say the burden of trying to prove you're good enough is all on you. It's on your power, your strength, your discipline, your fortitude, your grit. You have to try in your own strength. You have to try hard to be good with everything you've got to be kind, to be forgiving. And hopefully in the end it'll work out. But you'll never really know in this life. Did you do enough good? Christianity doesn't say that. Following Jesus in faith brings with it the promise that we actually are given his spirit and his power to live this life. The same spirit that gave Jesus power over impossible things is placed within us so we can live out with the same impossible scenario before us. The victory has already been accomplished. Jesus says you can't live the life required to have access to God. You're hopeless. You're desperate. You're helpless. So I'm going to come and die And I'm going to give my life up for you. All you have to do is say yes and receive my life for you. Receive my forgiveness. And I'll place my spirit inside of you for those who believe. And with my spirit comes my power. And you'll be able to live this life I've modeled for you in my son. Surrendering is the only path to victory. Shift number six is a shift away from strategy, a shift away from from trying to to, to deceive ourselves to think we have control over outcomes. Well, if I do this and I do this and I do this and we do it in this amount of time and we go here and we're in front of these people, then boom, we can accomplish it. And, And so easy in our human productivity obsession, we get caught up in that. Well, if we just do this and do this and do this and that'll ultimately equal this as if it's like easy mathematics. More surrender is moving away from control. It's letting go. It's it's more trust, not in our abilities to manipulate things. It's more trust in our Savior. And it seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? That when we want to win, we surrender. That the way to win is to give up. I mean, it doesn't work in sports. Like in the, in the last few moments of a hockey game, I'm not a huge hockey fan, but in the last few moments, if you're down one goal, what do you do? You pull your goalie and you leave the net completely exposed so you can put one more person on the ice. And there's been so many hockey games where some guy just kind of kicks the puck out of their end and it just glides across and ends up in the goal because there's nobody there to defend it. 
Like surrendering, surrendering the goalie is not a great plan for the entirety of a hockey game. It's a last-dish effort because you're desperate and you're helpless. It doesn't work in, uh, in war. Nobody says, hey, you know what? If we just keep retreating all the time, we'll eventually win. It doesn't even make sense. I mean, you don't, your offense, if you're playing football and your, your quarterback, you just take a knee and take a knee and take a knee, you're just going to keep backing up. There's no hope of winning that way. I mean, this doesn't even work in Monopoly. Most of us don't even, we have to go to the bathroom. We don't leave the board because we're afraid somebody's going to steal from the bank, right? Like, you've got to keep your eyes on those people. There's a lot of shady characters playing Monopoly in this world. This is a very backward strategy when we think about it. This is not how our culture works. This is not how society works. But it worked at the cross. Jesus willingly laid down his life. No one took it from him. He laid it down. He surrendered his life. And we won. He accomplished the greatest victory that's ever been accomplished through surrender. And then he invites us to follow him into that life. And live a surrendered life that he modeled. And the Apostle Paul begins to lay out brilliantly what this kind of surrender, this kind of victory really looks like. In verse 13, he says, therefore, he reiterates it, what he said in verse 11, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Resist. Put on the armor. Then after the battle, you'll still be standing firm. You won't be exhausted on the ground about to die. After the battle ensues, you'll still be standing firm. That's the power of God within us. Stand your ground putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness, or other translations say the breastplate of righteousness, body armor to protect us. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And pray for me too, Paul says. Ask God to give me the right word so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. The full armor of God is how we are strengthened and how we can stand against the strategies of the enemy of God. And the reason the enemy of God has strategies is he's trying to control outcomes and he does not understand. He can't get it through his head. God is the only one that that, that controls outcomes. So let's run through these real quick in a list form. The belt of truth. I'm a fan of Batman. If you're a fan of Batman, especially the old Adam West TV series, he always had that belt, right? And he would shoot it up walls, and then he would climb walls like this, right? Because you know now, they turn the camera over, right? So he was just walking on the ground, climbing up. But, but Batman has this tool belt with tools in it, so when he gets in a pinch, he has the right thing at the right time to get out of it. And when we feel the pinch of the enemy as followers of Jesus, it'll be the word of God's truth that will help us figure out how do we navigate this What's the tool that we need? What's the promise we need to cling to? What's God saying how I need to act or react or respond? Or even how my feelings are deceiving me? What what am I supposed to feel when this kind of thing happens? The Word of God is the most profound and consistent way God speaks to His children. So the question is, if you don't engage with the Scriptures, how can you be sure what God is saying to you? The breastplate of righteousness, the body armor of God's righteousness, that as we live in the reality that the righteousness of Christ has wrapped around us, we are protected, we're guarded. And as we live lives of increased faith and obedience to God, we get to be visible agents of his goodness in this world. If you see somebody wearing body armor, you recognize it. The question is, if we're covered in the righteousness of God, the breastplate of righteousness, do those around us recognize, recognize it in us? Gospel shoes. You know, nothing protects you along 
a long journey on foot like that of shoes. It's the foundation that gives you stamina to move forward. Have you ever walked, you know, you ever walked behind somebody? We used to do this all the time in high school. I'm not recommending this, okay? Um, I don't want anybody to be a bully, but I would do it. My, me and my friends would do it. Somebody would, you know, you'd walk, somebody would walk in front of the other one, and there's their feet, and it's just this massive temptation to kind of kick their foot, right? And what happens when they're walking? They're walking, and all of a sudden, they, they do this, right? And those that aren't very coordinated fall, and everybody laughs. Once again, not recommending it, but we used to do that all the time to each other. You can push somebody in the shoulders, but, but it's not where, where their foundation is built for balance. You take them out at the feet. Everything is built from the ground up. The foundation we stand on is the gospel. The foundation of the church is, well, we just got to make people feel good. The foundation is, is not, well, we just got to persuade people to think like us. The foundation of the Christian faith isn't connected to a political party or some certain agenda that we've got to get accomplished. The foundation that everything is built upon for us as the body of Christ is the gospel. It's the good news that God didn't have to rescue us, but he chose to. He chose to come and pay for our sin so we could be restored. And so how we live with people, how we love them should be built upon how beautifully we've experienced personally the gospel and how passionately we want them to experience the gospel as well. He talks about a shield of faith. You know, typically when we think of a a shield in our independent kind of American mindset, we think of like one soldier against another, sword and shield. Oftentimes now we think about this guy, Captain America, or at least the old Captain America, not the new one. But, but he's got this shield and even uses it as a weapon of offense. But this is not the mindset or the context that the Apostle Paul had in mind. He had this in mind, a Roman garrison, and how they use shields. Look at this picture. Side by side, linked together, and a roof on top. To become an impenetrable shield, one person on their own is not protected. But a garrison together, a front, a top, and sides... And packed in and huddled together when arrows are shot through the sky. This gives us a whole different understanding of how your shield of faith and my shield of faith and someone on the other side of the room's shield of faith and somebody online's shield of faith, how they fit together this subconscious idea of being linked together as the body of Christ and united is one of the ways that we resist the strategies of the devil. And Paul says we resist the strategies of the devil collectively. This is a a plural, not just me. It's us. A shield of faith has strength when it's drawn in together with others. Because there's times where our faith is in question. Where we're going through something and we're kind of doubting that we can trust God. What do we need? We need someone beside us to, hey, remember who you are. Remember what he's done. Remember the moments in his life where he's shown up and revealed to you he was there all along. Even though you can't see it, he's working. Even though you can't feel it, he's working. The helmet of salvation This is the knowledge that God has intervened in this world and he's carried your sin into the cross. You have been saved. You're not trying to earn salvation. You've been given salvation through faith. And it strengthens us when we realize, now I get to live in light of that. I don't have to live trying to earn it. I get to live because I've already been saved. I've already been given the power of God's spirit so I can live this life of obedience and deeper faith. I don't have to be good because Jesus was good on my behalf. And then he says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is is the weapon we have for attacking the strategies of the devil. In the same way Jesus uses the Word of God when the enemy tried to tempt him. It's kind of interesting that everything else here really is a protective measure. Helmet, breastplate of righteousness, you know, you've got the shoes, you've got a shield, you've got a belt. 
All of these things kind of protect and give us tools that we need to navigate things. But man, the one that both defends and attacks is the sword. The word of God is vital to that verse 11 vision Paul started with. Let me read it again. He says, put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Paul's not just giving us good ideas. He's given us more than strategies. He's given us a path to strength, a path to stand firm, not just before the battle, not just during the battle, but even when the battle is over to still be standing and to find victory. And the victory comes not through fighting harder, not through trying more, not trying to convince anybody of anything. The victory comes through surrender. It's actually through letting go. The victory doesn't come through our abilities, but the power of God at work Within us, And more than armor, more than a cool list, God has given us each other to stand with as a family. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, some 200 plus different microchurches spread throughout the ancient city. And he's trying to get them to see how much they need each other in all of these shifts that they're going to have to make. And these are more than goals to shoot for. If you're a goal setter, that's awesome. This is more than goals in life. Because whenever we have a goal that there's a problem, we have to try to figure out a strategy to to employ just right to reach the goal. And there's a danger there. For instance, as a church, we have a a goal at Fusion of, of disciple reproduction. We want to reproduce disciples. I mean, it comes right from the Great Commission. This is the mission Jesus gives us before he ascends in heaven. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. It's pretty clear, pretty simple. We are called to make disciples, not make converts. Conversion is a part of the process of discipleship, but to be lifelong growing and deepening our faith in in Jesus and in our obedience to him, teach them to obey. So with the goal of being a church that makes disciples, we have strategies we've employed to try to make ground in that direction, right? Discipleship rallies once a month to bring people around a table to talk deeper in discipleship, in guided discussion about what we believe growing and our obedience to God growing. We have disciple maker groups where we just kind of relentlessly encourage people, be together with four to six guys or gals or, or a few married couples together and, and, and just go on the journey of life together, navigate those things and, and get together intentionally and, and don't just talk about all the struggles of life, not all the things that you're upset about and you wish you could change, but talk about, talk about the message on Sunday, talk about a book that that you're reading, talk about scripture, talk about something that focuses our attention on Jesus. We have goals at Fusion to, to multiply another church at some point, whether that's us kind of giving birth to a local church plant somewhere here in our region or being a part of planting a church in another part of the country or another part of the world or a second Fusion campus connected to ours. I mean, we, it's not our vision, it's God's vision. We're just trying to be receptive to it. But we've employed a couple of strategies to try to move in that direction and demonstrate to God we're serious about whatever he's calling us to. And so right now we've got over, as a result of this last year now, it's over $63,000 in a bank account generating interest so we have resources to invest when God opens the door for us to move in that direction of reproducing or multiplying another church. At the same time, we're also, we set one Sunday aside a year and one week for, to encourage or invite you to ask God how he might call you to give to reduce debt. You know, if you go back to when we first moved into this building in that entire time, eight years now, this, is, this weekend is actually our eighth anniversary. We're starting our ninth year, going back to 2013. is when we moved into this building, when it was finished for the first time, when all the, the renovations in the initial phase were done, and now we've done phase two, and now we're on phase three. 
But we set aside one week, we've done this for a number of years to attack the debt. We spent over a half a million dollars renovating this space. And that debt number of over half a million is now down to 163,000. Like it's just radical how it's come down. And, and, and the sooner we're debt free, the more resources we have to demonstrate to God, to say, hey Lord, we're serious about multiplying churches. Debt reduction Sundays today, whatever you choose to give in the basket, whatever you choose to give online, all of it from now through Saturday goes to reducing the debt. If that's something that strikes a chord in you, you'd say, God, I think you want me to give big. Just ask him what he has for you to give. It might be your regular tithes and offerings. That's great. We're going to set that aside too, but it's all going to go towards debt reduction, whatever's brought in. We have a goal at Fusion to invest in the next generation at all levels. So we have staff members we've hired that we compensate to creatively engage uh, kids of every, le- every age and every level, including the expansion of dedicating space to them in the new youth space that, that, that is you know, hopefully going to be finished here very soon. We're in the planning stage of relaunching Tiny Steps. I know many of you have asked about that. And, and so here's where you need to pull out your phone, and, and this is a way for you to serve. Maybe you don't have a lot of margin financially to give, but you do have time, and you can say, hey, I'd hang out with babies and toddlers. We really have to completely relaunch this ministry from when it was over a year ago now. And so if you'd say, I'm, I'm willing to serve one, one worship gathering a month to kick this off again and hang out with some babies or toddlers, then you can go on the homepage of your app, and you can, it says right there, sign up, say, I'm willing to be a part of Tiny Steps to help it kick back off. So we have, we have a lot of goals, a lot of things. We, we have a goal in our church where one of our core values, we talk about all the time, one of the kind of the philosophies we believe, one of our assumptions is that the gospel never changes, but we must constantly change the way we present the gospel because our culture continues to change. And we've got to find a, effective ways to communicate the gospel in ways that people receive it. And so on Saturday, June 19th, there, there's a one-day conference called The Future of the Church, and, uh, and we're going to be in this room. It's free. Anybody can be a part of it. You just got to sign up on the app. Uh, it's under events. You'll see it there on the website under events. Uh, and it's just going to be, it's like late morning to like three or four o'clock in the afternoon. We're going to bring down the big screen and we're just going to have conversations about what does the future of the church look like in the wake of COVID? What, what is God saying to other leaders around the country? And then there's going to be time for discussion around s- tables for us to say, hey, I, I just, I wonder, I wonder what God's vision is for us. So we can have goals like this that we set for the next five or 10 years, and we hope to see God do some amazing things. And goals are good because they help us identify steps that we need to take to move in that direction. But if we ever start to believe that our strategies are going to accomplish anything, we've lost sight of who owns the church. It's not us. Great plans and strategies will not accomplish the mission God has given us. It is only by surrender to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that will bring about the favor and blessing of God on us. At the core of following Jesus is a commitment to surrender our lives, to surrender our thoughts, to surrender our emotions, to surrender our will and our plans, and surrender the outcome to trust in His hands. We don't control outcomes. We don't create results. We don't change the world because we didn't create the world. Only our God can change the world. But he has given us authority to influence it, to influence the circle of people that relationships you have, and for someone near you to influence their circle, someone else to influence their circle. And then collectively, God has given us an incredible amount of influence. The question is, are we using it to bring him glory or to bring glory to someone or something else? We can have a grand strategy of how we want to reach the world for Christ how we want other people we care about to be in heaven, but it's not our strategies that are going to rescue them. 
It's only by surrendering to our Heavenly Father. So would you join me as we pray a prayer of surrender this morning? Lord Jesus, we worship and celebrate what you've done over the last year in the life of our church. We thank you for the ways in which our, our teams here, volunteers and, and staff and, and just everybody that, that's passionate about ministry here, the way that they've flexed and been adaptable to try everything possible in our strength to communicate the gospel and to employ strategies to do that. God, ultimately we know we don't control the results. You do. So we trust you with what you want to do through our church family, God. We let go. Would you help us in every day of our lives to continue to surrender deeper and deeper and deeper? And it's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.